Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm delighted to say this week we're joined by Danny Roderick from Harvard University, one of the world's leading economists. I'm going to embarrass him now by introducing him to people who may not know about his work with reference to an article that was written last summer around the time of the Republican convention when Donald Trump gave his Midnight in America speech. And I should say we're talking on the morning after he addressed Congress in a somewhat more optimistic tone. But a few people noted then and with his inaugural that he sounded like a villain from a Batman movie, the Joker or something. And this article then said, who is Batman who will come and save Gotham City? His name is Danny Roderick. So we're thrilled to have him here. And then the article goes on to speculate about if Danny is Batman, who is Robin? We've got Helen Thompson and Finbar Livesey with us looking very skeptically at me. <laughs> so Danny, if we could start this discussion, if you could tell people a bit about something that you wrote 10 years ago, I think, about globalization and have been thinking about for a long time, which is what you call the trilemma, that we can't have it all. Do you want to just tell people how you frame that trilemma and then we'll try and fit Trump into it? Well, thank you, David. First, I appreciate uh, your clarifying for me what that Batman article really meant because I wasn't quite sure. It was, what it it was very flattering. <laughs> I don't you. think anyone doesn't like the thought of Batman coming to the rescue. I, 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 I'm reassured. Uh, I think the globalization trilemma basically says you cannot have hyper-globalization national sovereignty and democracy uh, at the same time. You can have at most two of those three things. And I think the best way that to think about it is, is in terms of the historical evolution of the world economy. If you go back to the first era of globalization, which was an era of deep globalization under, under the gold standard, it was basically a combination of national sovereignty with deep globalization, but with democracy held at bay. Um, and this is in the so, first decades of the 20th this century. This is basically, you know, the, the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century. And it wasn't that we didn't have states. We had states, but they viewed their primary economic function as the maintenance of an open global economy, the maintenance and the enforcement of the rules of free trade and free capital mobility. That was the, the classical gold standard. Then we had this uh, system eroded and eventually failed in large part, of course, because we had mass mobilization of trade unions, ordinary people, the rise of a free media. Basically, uh, the democratic part of the basically trilemma. Basically, the democracy sort of you know, reared its head, which made it impossible for the government particularly in Britain, of course, which had to come off the gold standard in 1931, precisely because it faced the, the question of whether it would uh, pursue austere economic policies to maintain the gold standard, or would it give in and allow economic reflation and stimulus, which meant getting off the gold standard. In the immediate decades after the Second World War, we had a basically a Keynesian solution, which was to combined the nation state with a democracy. And I think Keynes had a deep understanding of the fact that capitalism could only survive if you allowed the state, the government to manage the capitalist economy. In this case, of course, that meant managing the business cycle. But more broadly, as it developed in the first few decades after the Second World War, was erecting safety nets and social welfare states, providing the kind of institutions that would provide buy-in for capitalism, and that all was provided by the nation state. But all of that really 
meant that you had to keep globalization at bay. So the kind of globalization we had in the decades after the Second World War was actually a very thin form of globalization. The general agreement on tariffs and trade you know, undertook some trade liberalization, but the bulk of world trade, actually, with agriculture, services, the developing world, uh, was really outside any kind of international rules or international discipline. And certainly, with respect to capital flows, they were supposed to be controlled and managed, as Keynes famously said. The role of capital controls was not simply a temporary expedient, it was a permanent feature, and it was permanently to create space for the nation-state to manage the economy. Um, And And then then that system... I'm sorry. And then, and then that, that, system. And that system fell apart in the 1970s, uh, primarily under the impetus of progressive liberalization of capital flows. And I think I trace the origin uh, of our troubles to sort of the period of since the late 1980s and 1990s, when essentially we began to pursue a kind of mindless globalization where globalization became an end rather than a means and rather than serving the needs of our democracies the priorities were somehow reversed and our democracies became a means for serving the end of globalization and of course political leaders would not exactly put it that way but in much of their narrative and their policies and the way that they carried out their business I think that's what it seemed like. So by the terms of your argument if globalization reared its head in this period You could have the nation state, but democracy would therefore be suppressed. Or you could have democracy, but then the nation state would have to be suppressed. That was, as you saw it, basically the choice, though politicians never put it in those terms. Exactly. I think so. In fact, when I first wrote the article, I thought that the European Union was probably the only part of the world that could reach sort of a kind of a workable third solution of this, which is to basically transnationalize democracy and therefore, you know, get rid of the nation state and have a kind of a single market meets a single polity. Well, you know, some kind of a quasi-federalism at the European level where the deliberation and the decision-making over the form of social and political institutions that should underpin uh, the single market is determined and discussed debate at the level of Europe. We can get into a sort of whether this was realistic and why it did not happen, but that, in a sense, is, is the third possible solution, which I thought was probably only feasible for Europe, and I think with hindsight, even that probably is, was very I unfeasible. I think the reason why it wasn't, I mean, I agree with pretty much everything that you said, I think the reason why it wasn't feasible was because of the Eurozone, the single currency, it was essentially both an anti-nation state project and a fundamentally anti-democratic project because of the role of the European Central Bank. So actually, although in principle, the EU had got the capacity to find a way out of the dilemma, in fact, it doubled down on the globalisation aspect of it and gave up on, not gave up on both of the other two, but was so weak on the democracy front. I think the other thing, though, and I just wonder what you think about this, is is that the nation state stays in a way, but at the same time it gets rhetorically discredited by the way in which the language of globalisation is deployed by politicians. So it's not like ultimately in the period that we're living in that we even get two of the three, we get like one and a half. Yeah, that's precisely the consequence of of not putting those choices on the table explicitly. And therefore, I think what happens is when you get stuck in the middle of this trilemma, then you have all kinds of crises and all kinds of incompatibilities develop. And I think you're right, you don't even end up getting two out of three because simultaneously you're reaching out for all three of them. But let me say something about the euro. I think you're absolutely right. Now, it's very interesting to go back and think about 
what were the people who put together the euro thinking when the euro came about. And it's not that, you know, the trilemma wasn't somewhere deep down in people's minds, even though, you know, that's not how they would have articulated it. But I think there were two positions that made people willing to embark on the euro. One is the one that you mentioned, which was mostly held by economists and technocrats, which was the view that the state had become way too active in the economy to begin with, and that, in fact, it was good to go back to some kind of a gold standard so that the institutions of the euro would restrain the state from intervening too much. And the erosion of the welfare state or the restraining of economic management was a good thing. So it was going back to this notion of you know self-equilibrating, self-managing economy, pre-Keynesian kind of an understanding of the economy. That was sort of like the you know the neoliberal economist view under which it made sense to go to the euro. In a way, they were condoning the return to the gold standard. I think with respect to, on the part of a lot of politicians, there was the view that, yes, this created an imbalance. You know, the fact that we were pushing so hard on the single market while the political and fiscal institutions were going to lag behind. But I think there was implicit view that these quasi-federal institutions would develop over time and that this imbalance would be made up. Now, I think the, the difficulty is that neither of these two views under which you could justify the euro could be stated in public, because neither of them was actually a very politically popular view. The economists' view that this is an argument to discipline the state, obviously, was not a political... Or, you know, the, the other argument that, yes, ultimately, we don't want a quasi-federal Europe, and this is just a way of getting that. It's just going to take us... That wasn't politically popular either. So, you know, we should have learned something from the fact that the only two arguments under which the euro made sense could not be articulated in public, you know, was was the in, the inherent fragility of the system. I think there's a third position as well, is, is the French position, which actually was explicitly in their minds cast in terms of your trilemma, so that they did think the problem of monetary Europe in the 1980s is, is that we don't get enough of the nation state, we don't get enough of the French nation state, and we don't get enough of democracy because the Germans get to set monetary policy via the Bundesbank. So they conceived, I think, initially that monetary union would be a means of getting some more nation-state via taming Germany and some more democracy by having a European central bank that might have a mandate that went beyond price stability. And then the French conception of it is entirely thwarted by the price to Germans' demand for monetary union. So actually then you end up doubling down on the the non-nation-state bit of it, except as far as German national preferences are translated into the ECB, and doubling down on the non-democracy Yes. part of it. Yes. And the French can then never admit that that's what's happened. I'm really curious as well to talk about just this idea of hyperglobalization because a lot of the time, as you said, it's this very simplified discussion, more is better, go, go, go. But we don't tend to break out and talk about globalization physically, about goods as opposed to services, as opposed to digital, as opposed to culture, as opposed to the financial flows as well. And so I'm curious, just in the trilemma, when you talk about hyperglobalization or more shallow, weaker globalization, do all those indicators have to be heading in the same direction? Or how do we talk about a world in which we've got very loose capital but very tight tariffs on product or vice versa? I explicitly talk about hyperglobalization to distinguish it from globalization as we have it now. So hyperglobalization you know, we don't have it currently, not even within the single market to some extent, in the sense that it is really, you know, no difference between a 
global market from a national market. And to that extent, I don't think we have hyper-globalization really anywhere. But I think it's, it's a gradation. I think each one of those impose certain restrictions, some more so than others. I mean, I think, for example, financial globalization has had much more constraints, both on national fiscal policy, tax policies, and as well as as demand management policies, than GATT-style tariff reductions. And I think the reason that the Keynesian arrangements worked so well is, you know, we were having significant amount of tariff reductions around the world, but they were really confined to those areas that didn't really constrain sort of social bargains domestically. So they were basically reductions in tariffs on manufacturing among countries with similar levels of income, similar kind of social arrangements. So, it, so when tariffs reductions then began to reach, for example, textiles and clothing from developing countries with very different wage levels, with very different kinds of, of social institutions, they became much more damaging to uh, advanced industrial countries. And then you had the response. You had the response in the kind of a multi-fiber arrangement and various uh, kind of other trade restrictions. That was kind of the Keynesian system trying to reassert itself. You know, ultimately, I think they all involve certain trade-offs, some much more so than others. One interesting thing is that when you think about the countries where the anti-globalization populist backlash has gone the furthest, and if you think about sort of the Brexit movement here or, or Trump in the United States, I would not have said that those are the two countries where you would have had the, the globalization trilemma come to play before the others, because in some sense, Britain, in the context of European Union, was not the most integrated, right? It has all the opt-outs, it's not part of the euro. It would not have been the first country I would have thought where the trilemma comes to bite. The United States also, in many ways, is much more insulated from the world economy than many others. And I think here, the optics and the reality have been a little bit different. And I think here is where I blame the political elites, that I think political elites too often hid behind globalization, and I think make them seem much bigger constraint on actual domestic policy than they really were. I know the U.S. obviously much better, but there was a lot of thing that the you know U.S. governments could have done to alleviate some of the downsides of globalization and sell policies on their own merit rather than sort of be hiding behind globalization. And I think that would have alleviated some of the backlash against globalization. And one aspect of that is the rhetoric of free trade, which you've written about, the idea that it's free and it's unconstrained, whereas I think most voting publics recognise that it's incredibly regulated and it involves all sorts of trade-offs and winners and losers. But the language of free trade clearly, certainly in this country, in the United States, is part of what provoked that backlash. Right? And Trump, that was a large part of what he was able to mobilize. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think instinctively, a lot of people, and again, I'll, I'll take the US example, that Trump was able to base his message on the idea that some of this trade was really unfair trade. You know, people don't necessarily get upset when they lose their jobs because they feel that you know, other people in similar circumstances have outcompeted them. This happens, right? I mean, like, the trade is minuscule relative to all the other competitive pressures that cause economic dislocations in advanced uh, market economies. And yet, why is that trade becomes politically so controversial as a source of redistribution? I think it's because often trade causes these dislocations under circumstances that we have 
ruled out in the domestic context. So in the domestic context, we don't allow people to be driven out of business by somebody else hiring children workers or by you know employing other people for 12-hour days or by getting differential benefits from their government when you're not getting. So there's a level playing field. So if you lose your job, it's because somebody else was smarter or came out with a better product, you know, saved and invested when you didn't. But if you're losing your job because somebody outsourced to a firm in Vietnam or Bangladesh, where working conditions are so different, there's inherently this notion that this is not fair competition. Now, the whole free trade discussion in the United States and globally, really, even on the ages of the WTO, completely refused to make any distinction between trade and trade. So the notion of unfair trade was limited to simply anti-dumping. And that was the only thing. Of course, anti-dumping hurts primarily corporations. But if, you know, worker complaints or environmental complaints or consumer complaints about unfairness was basically completely ignored in the world trading system. So then you leave the field open to somebody like Trump or other populists who can just come in and just build their message on this fundamental notion that there is something going on here which isn't quite right, but our mainstream politicians are just not responding to. But then you can build it and make it seem like a bigger problem than it is. So now the whole conversation in the United States is as if 75% of trade suffers from this legitimacy or fairness problem, whereas probably no more than 15, 20% does. And so I think we get a much bigger problem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As a result. As I said last night, he gave, he, he who shall not be named, the president gave his first address to Congress. It was more measured, but it didn't answer the question that many people have about his presidency, which is how on earth is he going to deliver on some of the things that he has claimed he will deliver to the people who voted for him. So how much room do you think he has? I mean, is there any sense in which a kind of Trump political candidacy can deliver on its promises? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Earlier, I thought that, you know, if he was going to front load his program with some kind of an infrastructure. Which he did talk uh, about last uh, night, but again, uh, with no details, just exactly. it would be great so, to spend a uh, trillion dollars or whatever it and is. I, but I just don't see, because, you know, that that's the kind of thing could create a short term boost in, in employment. But I just don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So, no, I think the short answer is no. I, I know the jobs aren't coming back. I uh, actually don't think in trade that he's going to really do a whole lot. I mean, I think it's going to be mostly fireworks, but not a lot of action on the ground. So I think, you know, the danger we're looking at with Trump is is not mainly an economic one. It's mainly a political one, which is that as his economic promises remain undelivered, how does he then respond to the growing dissatisfaction. Uh, Of course, he he doesn't have the Northeastern elites with him, the liberals with him to begin with. But then, you know, how is he going to prevent his base from deserting himself? And I think this is then 
when I fear he's going to strike another page out of the you know the playbook of all illiberal authoritarian governments, which is to to deepen the cleavages, you know, sort of reinforces populism by becoming more of an illiberal authoritarian autocrat uh, in the style of Viktor Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in, in Turkey. And I think, you know, what that does to democracy in the United States is my main concern. And it's a bit like what Helen was saying, that the irony of the trilemma is that actually when it goes wrong, you don't get two of the three, you get one of the three. You get the nation state. I mean... I or think, nationalism, yeah. for one of the better that, word. Clearly, that, that is the, the easiest move that he makes is towards a, a growing language of nationalism. And you can see that if there's anything that unites the positions that he would take, including his sort of critique of the American oligarchy as somehow being global and therefore unpatriotic, it is about the nationalist message. So unless he is able to deliver on something economically, and obviously he had some sort of symbolic victories before he became president about getting these various companies to not move jobs to other parts of the world, but it would take too many of those, I think, to make a a significant difference. And he's almost certainly going to have a confrontation with the Federal Reserve Board at some point during the course of the year when when it tries to raise interest rates. Then it's quite hard to see where he goes in terms of delivery, except to use that phrase again, doubling down on the nationalist parts of it, which may well be in terms of the immigration issue. Though he seemed actually last night in his speech to move to a more centrist position back again, which was to offer the possibility of a bipartisan bill on immigration, which is a long way from where he's previously been. I'm really interested in the distance between how you think about where different countries and the world generally should be within the trilemma at different points in time and how that changes, but also then how all of these moves we're just talking about with Trump changed the space for other countries to solve the trilemma. And so I'm curious now, the influence, the backwash, as it were, coming out of what Trump is doing, how does that influence what's happening around Brexit for the UK and the choice that's been made and the negotiation that's about to happen? So do you think that Trump and the explicit choices that have been made about where they sit within this space have a knock-on effect for other countries? And what would that be? Yeah, I mean, it clearly does. I mean, I I think what this has done is basically open up the space. So, you know, the nation state is reasserting itself. But as Helen says, you know, that doesn't necessarily then lead to more democracy. So, you know, the fact that the nation state has greater room and now it's sort of even economists who were the boosters of financial globalization and so forth are now coming back and saying that, you know, we need some kind of a responsible nationalism and things like that, you know, suggests that the whole narrative around, you know, what's appropriate for the nation state and the balance between economic globalization and nation state has changed. And so Trump is both a cause and also a reinforcer of that trend. And everybody in the world gets this, that same message. So now the question is then, what do you do with that message? And here, what I find myself, you know, puzzling over is, where is the left? Where is the, where are the progressives? Because those are the ones who, in principle, should be, you know, sort of using this space, using this rebalancing of the role of the state vis-a-vis economic globalization for a progressive purpose in a liberal democratic uh, fashion. Everywhere that I turn, it, it seems to be it's the right-wing populists, it's the nativists. Uh, who, Except who, possibly for Germany. Well, we'll see there if the SPD is is able to continue 
But of course, there too, I mean, the first winners were the, you know, the alternative for Germany. It was a very, you know, the, the response, the initial response came really from the right for it. I'm just interested how you characterize Sanders through the last year and how he plays into this. Because as you say, where is the left and, and where is the narrative that contradicts some of what's coming out from the right wing side of uh, politics right now? But would you have said that Sanders was a left wing yes. extreme nationalist? Yes, yes. I was a supporter of Bernie Sanders. I, I disagreed with many of his policies, but I thought that the system needs to be shaken up. And that's what Trump does, too. And that's the sense in which, you know, this is a discussion that we have with Robert Unger, who is the... Uh, the article the, said the, the he, was, he was Robin <laughs> to your Batman. I should say that. <laughs> the Robin in it's that not article. Helen Orfenbach. Uh, so his view is that, look, you know, this is an opening. But of course, the, the concern is that with Trump, he's opening up the system, but you can see his intentions is not to deepen democracy or, or to make our societies more inclusive. So unless there are other people, other important forces that are going to push us in the right direction, then it becomes, you know, a slide into a liberalism and nativism rather than inclusive societies. I don't know if Bernie Sanders would have won against Trump, uh, but I do think that that would have been a better alternative. But I do think that even if Hillary Clinton had won, the problem would not have gone away. I mean, I think that's what the trilemma says. You know, this is it's an ongoing tension. And, you know, it might have been that somebody with Trump's ideas, but less of his misogyny and other undesirable characters would have been even a bigger winner next time around. I think one of the things that's really interesting about the point you made about the left and the nation state is this, is, is that in one sense, everything that the way in which the left has responded to what's happened in the last year has made the problem worse, because essentially the left has a tendency, a strong tendency, to now equate um, the nation state with nativism. And not seeing that when it gives up on the nation state that it's giving up on its political capacity to act in any way that has made historical sense so far. So to get to the position where it is now engaging in delegitimating the nation state further by not being able to see what its political purpose is because it says nativism and the nation state are the same thing is a terrible historical mistake, I think, for the left to make. But that is what we are seeing it doing in front of our eyes. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that certainly in the US that I see much of the left, they associate progressivism with um, a kind of globalism that is uh, neither here nor there. And I think one consequence of that is to devalue or undervalue the nation state. You know, I think, for example, we should talk about, you know, patriotism rather than nationalism, because nationalism is associated as these connotations that we may not like. But, I, you know, I'm perfectly okay with patriotism, and I don't think it's incompatible with having um, humane and socially progressive views. And I wrote a little piece uh, just a few weeks ago on, on Theresa May's statement that, uh, you know, people who say they're global citizens don't know. Uh, As citizens of nowhere. Uh, they citizens terms. of nowhere. And I was struck by, you know, the virulence with which sort of polite opinion responded to that. And, and to me, that that's, you know... It sounded like what you said was fairly obvious. I think it's the echoes that it has for many people. I mean, that's the... That's right. I mean, this is a lot about rhetoric, and it's just... I found it uncomfortable, I have to say, just because for me it had particular associations. I think as a blunt statement of neutral fact, it's true that uh, you're a citizen of nowhere if you're a citizen of everywhere, but I just find that rhetoric uncomfortable. Yeah. 
I think the striking thing is, is though, would people have found that uncomfortable in sitting in your position in the 1950s, 1960s, 70s, 80s? I don't think that they would have. I think it's a measure of the fact of the way in which the nation state is being delegitimated over this period that people now feel uncomfortable towards it. I agree with you that they do, but I think that is a specific temporal phenomenon that as the language of globalisation took over and went far beyond the actual reality of globalisation and the actual politics of globalisation, that we end up with a position where something that would have been neither here nor there if a politician had even if the left had said it in the 70s and 80s, turns out to be something that gives lots of people the heebie-jeebies. Danny, can I ask you another question? You're here to give a lecture about growth as well. And that's one of the historical features of how the trilemma has been resolved. When democracy is deepened, it often goes along with pretty regular and significant economic growth. And and part of Trump's promise, of course, is to bring growth back to the American economy. And I'm assuming that that promise also will be very, very hard to meet. So how does the trilemma work in the absence of significant economic growth? Does, is democracy necessarily going to be the loser? Well, I think in the absence of growth, the trilemma bites more. Obviously, you feel you know, the distributional costs and, and the various uh, trade-offs, you feel them much more when growth is, is slow. Clearly, I think in, in Europe, the reason that the euro is in, in such trouble and, and the trilemma really, you know, has come to the forefront uh, in ways that I never really anticipated is because of the politics of austerity that have aggravated the consequences of, of the financial crisis. But I think there's also the reverse relationship, which is that if you do not face up to the trade-offs that the trilemma states. So, for example, in the European context, if you are not explicit that the current situation in, in Europe generally and in the Eurozone specifically is unsustainable, that if you want to stick with the single market, that the political integration will have to catch up, that if you do not think that's feasible, then the single market will have to let up. And that's really the choice, unless, of course, you want to give up on democracy. But we're saying we don't want to give up on democracy. And therefore, either politics catches up with where the economics is, or the economics will have to be relaxed uh, so that, you know, there will be some, you know, more opt-outs, more relaxations, a two-speed euro or something like that. Now, if that essential trade-off is not faced head-on, then Europe is left in a situation that just continuously is going to be just one small crisis after another. And then, you know, sort of instead of kicking the can further down the road just to get ruined. And that's an environment where you're not going to get investment, where you're not going to get growth. And so that's the reverse link from sort of not facing up to the trilemma and then how it feeds to an environment of low growth and in a sense continued stagnation. And that, I fear, is, is the real danger that Europe faces. And in the way that... It was Trump rather than Sanders, but Trump at least represents a facing up to something. Do you feel that Brexit will force the rest of the EU to face up to this? In a way, Brexit is a, is a wake-up call for the rest of Europe, both as a signal, but also Brexit is something that makes it much easier for the rest of the Europe to deepen its political integration, because you know Britain was always the one who stood in the way. And I think with Britain out, then there is less reason for Europe to go down the, the political integration route. In, in a way, Trump also is that, because Trump now really makes clear that Europe really has to stick together, because, you know, the Americans are not going to be there behind Europe. So so both of these are sort of kicks in the pants. And 
one would wish that the new leadership after the German and French elections and so forth will really take this on board. That is the upside, if you will, for Europe. And can I change tack a little bit? Because your latest book is Economics Rules, talking about the nature of economics as a discipline and, and how you think about it as a science. And I'm very struck by what we just talked about and the nature of rhetoric and how it plays out in describing the trilemma and what option space is available. What role do you feel economists, and I'm being very careful as I look at you when I say this, have played in actually describing the trilemma badly? And how do you feel about essentially economics dominating policy discourse, especially in the United States? How is that playing out and what should we be doing about it? Economists have not done a good job here. And I think they bear part of the blame. I think, you know, what economists have done is basically joined the bandwagon of cheerleaders. And and, uh, and it's a very interesting phenomenon within the economics profession, which is something I've always tried to understand, because as a professional economist, as an academic economist, day in and day out, you know, I see in seminar, research seminars and papers, great variety of views on what the effects of trade agreements are, you know, the ambiguous effects of deep integration. Inside economics, you see that there is not a single view on globalization. But, you know, the moment that gets translated into the political domain, economists have this view that you should never, you know, provide ammunition to the barbarians. So the barbarians are, you know, these people who don't understand the notion of comparative advantage and the gains from trade. And you don't want to, you know, sort of any of these caveats, any of these uncertainties be reflected in the public debate. And so they become very worried. In my book on, I think it's in the globalization paradox, I talk about sort of this, you know, this economist who's providing all these differentiated, highly ambiguous case for when trade benefits, when trade doesn't, who would gain the gains and losses and so forth, that the notion that even the gains from trade for a nation is undefined because what does it mean for a nation to gain when some people are losing, others are? All of this is in the you know in the you know discussing this with a graduate student, and then he gets a call from a newspaper man and says, "So, what do you think about this trade agreement?" And immediately says, "Oh, that's wonderful! It's absolutely <laughs> great! You know, we should you know definitely sign it." So this, this is you know, this incredible dualism, and I get this criticism all the time when I go speak to an audience. And talk about some of the you know downsides of globalization that the cases are you know often ambiguous that we're overemphasizing the gains. Inevitably, an economist will stand up and say, "But don't you think you're basically by saying these things you're you're helping the protectionists that you're giving them ammunition?" And then I say, "Why do you think that there are barbarians on only on one side of this issue?" I mean, you know, is the distribution of barbarians is, is so skewed that there are, you know, basically only good guys on the other side of the issue? After all, who's been pushing for globalization? Pharmaceutical companies, multinationals, they have their own interests and they're after rents too, you know, no more than the, the protectionists on the other side. So I think, you know, the economists, their political economy, you know, has gone completely haywire in the way that they've approached this. And I think as a result, we've come to be perceived as, as basically, you know, sort of legitimizers of the globalization cheerleaders. And we've lost a good bit of our credibility. And therefore, as a result, when we actually say in public things that are really true, such as that, you know, if you're worried about the industrialization, loss of industrial jobs, for example, 
the bulk of this has to do with automation and technology and not about trade agreements. People don't listen to us anymore, but that happens to be true. There's almost an analogy here with climate change in that climate scientists also have this fear of giving ammunition to the barbarians. Mm And the uncertainties that internally they're very comfortable with talking about and the, the, the way that the risk is very poorly defined in some of their models. But you mustn't say that in public because it will feed yeah. the sceptics. And then it, it has the reverse effect, which is what the sceptics look at is something that looks to them like a closed shop. Yeah. And on we go. And it's very hard to get out of that. But you, but you can totally see how once you go down that route, route you're in real trouble. But also, it basically involves denying something that is pretty obvious and denying something that is part of many people's or at least a significant number of people's lived experience because yeah. they do experience being the losers yeah. from distributional economic questions. Yeah. So if you have economists and indeed politicians telling them that there is no such distributional conflict at play, they just think, well, these people yeah. are lying because I know that that's not yeah. true. Yeah. And, and, and economists should never have you know said that. I mean, all the workhorse models of gains from trade that we teach are models where there are significant distributional effects. In fact, the gains from trade, I mean, are the flip side of all the redistributive effects of trade. They just, you know, if, you know, one comes with the other. But somehow we feel that, you know, we shouldn't be saying these things in public lest people not believe in in trade anymore. And in an age where the fundamental suspicion of elites is that they have one language for ordinary people, and then a private language that they speak among themselves. Even if the intentions are good, it's fatal, I think, to go down that route. It's not an easy question. How do you communicate to the public the uncertainties that we have in our own minds? I think my solution to this, if, if a journalist calls you up and you know, asks you a question about the policy of the day, you can't run through, you know, here, I'm going to give you now the results of five models and, and, and 10 empirical papers, all of which come, you know. And, you and know, they you, say, but I thought you were Batman. That's <laughs> right, you've lost them. So that's not going to work. But what would work, I think that the only practical solution is that actually more economists speak in public so that all this debate gets filtered, not just through, you know, two or three well-known people with very well-known positions, you know, we feel that because we're dealing in a questions of applied policy interest, that it's incumbent on us to talk about these issues in public and not have all the wagons be circled, lest we're perceived as giving ammunition to the barbarians. Danny Roderick's lecture is going to be filmed. And if you'd like to watch it, we will link to it on Twitter. We're at tppodcast underscore. Do also please go to our new website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, where you can find out about us, about past episodes. Next week, we're going to be talking about Dutch politics, the forthcoming Dutch elections, and much else besides. Do please join us then. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Here we are, and we normally say what we had for breakfast at this point. I can guess if you were Christ's. You had a traditional Cambridge breakfast. No, actually, I was taken by a student to a croissant oh, coffee shop. So you were very lucky. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you escaped. I was spared. Okay, uh, so what did I have for breakfast? It's Waffle Wednesday today, so we made waffles. Waffle Wednesday. Okay, that's a whole. <laughs> that's not a good subtitle. <laughs> not saying you don't have Waffle Wednesday. Not but, on Ash Wednesday, no. But also yeah. not as a subtitle to the podcast, I think. True, because <laughs> yesterday was Pancake Tuesday, exactly. wasn't it? I was just yeah, no. Yeah. Every week is Waffle Wednesday in our house. I suppose my usual by the way. routines because the feast went on so late last night. How Cambridge? <laughs> uh, I had a cup of tea 
and then ran around headlessly and then came here. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.